hey, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. And just first of all, kudos to your church, this uh, outline you have for this summer series. This is awesome. This is, this is good stuff. Um, and it's biblical, it's important, it's practical, it's real, it's in our culture. And not many churches take the time, the effort, to discuss some issues that are very important in our culture. And uh, anyway, I, I thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I say it's a privilege to be an orthopedic surgeon. I enjoy what I do. Um, and uh, this was by another mentor. I've had many mentors in my life, and I appreciate them greatly. I hopefully define myself not as a Christian physician, but as a physician Christian. In other words, the emphasis being on the noun and what describes the noun. Hope you catch that. So being an orthopedic surgeon and being a Christian, I do have the privilege of doing lots of other things. Um, our private practice group is affiliated with the University of Oregon, as Oregon alluded to. We do uh, quite a few uh, research projects, physiology, those types of things. Um, but I do a lot of other things. I'm actually the state director of medical ethics, whatever that means. I'm not sure what that means. But uh, I do get invited to speak to the State Senate Committee on certain issues that are very uh, important in our culture today. And not that I really like to be involved in politics, because I don't, but if someone asks me, I will be. Um, I lead a club. University has different clubs, and we're actually a registered club called Medicine and Ministry. And it's for young people who are interested in the healthcare field, whatever that may be. It may be physician, nursing, PA, therapist, whatever. Uh, and we meet several times during the year uh, with a panel of other doctors, therapists, and nurses on very important issues, including these topics that we're going to discuss to others, as well as others, missions and faith and prayer and other kinds of issues. It's a very fun club to be a part of, uh, and it's not their discipleship group, so I encourage them to be in a church, in a discipleship group. This is just to help them navigate today's culture, because it is difficult for students these days in higher education to navigate these specific topics. Now, some of you are my age, I see out there, and uh, we kind of have this, a good, solid, biblical worldview, and sometimes it's easier to navigate. Sometimes not, but we're gonna go through this. Now, this is also gonna be very, very interactive. I appreciate you, again, I'll say it again, I appreciate you letting me be here. Uh, I'm a member of CMDA, which is the Christian Medical Dental Association, national organization, almost 20,000 physicians across the United States, uh, led by some very godly uh, men offices in North Carolina. But we have started a new, and it has tentacles throughout our culture. There's 50 different commissions, programs. That includes uh, mission trips all over the world, um, education throughout the world, and I get involved in some of those. But they have different other commissions, and one is a brand new commission of how to create programs to teach bioethics in the church, or at least have a discussion. And so we are creating more and more curriculum. This is kind of my personal curriculum, but I'm excited this. I've got 40 physicians across the country. They're helping me and others develop this curriculum. So you are the guinea pigs, all right, this morning, all right? So again, thank you for uh, letting me be here. Now, there we go, and that's our Slocum building. Um, so Here's a list of issues, and I'm going to make this very interactive. I'm going to kind of look at my paper as we go through this. But what are the issues 
that a healthcare provider, and I'm gonna use that term healthcare provider, it could be a physician, but I don't wanna exclude others, and that includes nurses and therapists and PAs. What are the issues that they face today that involve ethics, that involve morals, that involve values, all right? Um, so here's kind of a list uh, up there. Um, and this is not to be by any means exhaustive. And we're gonna try to cover all these issues to some degree, that's a lot of issues to discuss both this morning and next, next Sunday, all right? Um, so my next question for you is, so look at these issues, and some of these we're gonna focus more on than others. Um, I do wanna focus on sanctity of life. My other privilege is, um, how many here know what a pregnancy resource center is? Just raise your hand, PRC, so more than half, certainly. Uh, and there's one in Eugene, and I have the privilege of being the medical director. And I've been on the board for 28 years, but we went medical, which I'll tell you what that means, in 2011, which means we became AAAHC accredited, which is the federal accreditation program for all hospitals and clinics. We hired ultrasonographers, nurses, counselors, so we went medical. So we are a certified medical, and we call them patients rather than um, anyway. So I had the privilege of being the medical director, which is kind of ironic for an orthopedic surgeon to be the head of a, of a pregnancy center. But I have OB-GYN doctors, family practice doctors, who will make up the whole medical council. But I consider it a privilege because that is one of my passions. You'll, you'll hear my passions come out as we speak on some of these topics. And sanctity of life is clearly one of my passions. And I will just say right out front, I think is one of the most dividing issues in our culture, in our country today, and I, and I am not a prophet, but if I had to prophesize, it is going to be our civil war. It is going to be our civil war. And uh, I think the scripture is very clear on the sanctity of life, which we'll discuss. So here's my question for you. Why are these issues divisive? Now, I want you to speak out. We're not going to take a microphone around, but I'll repeat your answers. But all those issues up there, why are they divisive? Why are they divisive? And I want, this is going to be interactive. If you don't raise your hand... We're going to stand here in silence, all right? <laughs> so someone tell me, speak out, why are these issues divisive? Yeah. A great answer. So do you believe in God or do you believe in, let me paraphrase your answer, what other people believe is true? Yeah, I saw a hand over here. Matter of truth? Yeah, so what's true? All right, and we're going to talk about that. How do you find out what's true? Okay, so those are some great answers. Um, and if you want, well, you can open your Bibles too. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture because I think you have to go to Scripture to discuss some of these, all right? Acts 17, 11, it's one of my favorite verses. My dad had me memorize Scripture when I was age, started age four. If I got 12 Scriptures in a row, I used to do those little navigator cards. I got a baseball. So I knew it was all King James, by the way. So Acts 17, 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness in mind, whether those scriptures, whether those scriptures were true or not. Basically, that's Acts 17. So in other words, the story, Acts 17, 11, Paul is in Thessalonica at the home of a Christian believer, and uh, the, the Jewish, as well as what they called the, the other people in the city that were not so good, the bad people, stirred them up to create some 
animosity towards Paul because Paul was speaking the truth, right? He spoke the truth wherever he went, and that's in Thessalonica. So he fled, so the Christians there you know, said, let's go to Berea, which is just down the road about 20 miles. Let's go down there. So those in Berea accepted the truth. That's Acts 1711 because they searched the scripture daily, right? So that's what they did. So that's the importance is, is to know the truth. You can't do it unless you're in the scripture. And I think a lot of people try to, even churches will try to answer these issues today without going to the scripture. Does that make sense? And that's also, it's not only divisive in our culture, it's divisive in our churches. And, and Ed, I'm apologize, because I'm gonna sidetrack. We're gonna get through these, I promise. So I'm, I'm, I can tell you all kinds of stories, by the way. So this was a number of years ago, mainline denominational church, Eugene, Oregon, and again, being part of Dove Medical, which is our pregnancy resource center, they were doing a parent night for teens on sexuality. And so I invited two very good friends of mine, um, male friends, to said, we need to go to this. We don't have kids in the youth group, but these are parents of the youth group. About 100 parents show up, so a room like this, 100 parents. And the guest speaker was the state director of Planned Parenthood. And so she got up and spoke and basically stated, so this is in a mainline denominational church, okay? So this is why it's a cultural war. Mainline, and talked about how good it is for your teenagers to have sex, how good and natural it was. The youth pastor got up and spoke, and said, that's why I have condoms for all your children. Not, a, not an eye was blinked, not a hand went up, and I went away because I was a little bit, my brothers and I went away to pray because we were all three very nauseated at the time. But that's the cultural war we live in. And I'm hope, the other thing, I, I may say some things that are very offensive this morning, and I don't mean to offend anybody. Um, well, that's not true. I do mean to offend some people. I mean to offend people that are not looking to the Scripture and are not the Bereans looking to the Scriptures daily to see whether things are true. So if that is offensive to you, uh, then I do want to be offensive. But I don't want to be offensive to your personal life. Um, that I, I, don't, I don't want to do. So my next question is, why does the church need to teach on these issues? I alluded it to, but why does the church need to teach on these issues? Why? Any hands? Yes. We understand the nature. We need to understand the nature of our God, absolutely, because our God, His nature is is on. There's so many things to know about God, and God is truth, and His attributes, and and these are some of the things that He created. Absolutely. What else? Yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. So we need to know what the church believes and on these issues. So the church needs to teach on these issues. The other way that people find out what they think is of true of truth in regards to these issues from our culture. And I will tell you if you is how many people have kids in school? How many people have kids in school? Okay, so a handful. Your kids are going to learn and your kids are going to talk about these issues. All right? So the question is do you want them to learn from the culture or do you want to learn from the church? All right? Now, here's a tricky question. Why is the church fearful of teaching on these issues? And I say the church, not your church, because I'm here. You're here. We're going to discuss these issues, but the church universal, yeah. Controversy. Okay, good answer. It'll offend someone, yes, okay. 
And again, as I said, offense can be good or bad. Um, I just listened to a podcast on confrontation. Confrontation, there's a way to do it that is good, but there's also a way to do it that's bad. Okay, why else? Could affect the church's budget, absolutely. Okay, I, I like to put, group it in three categories. Either your pastor is, and again, not your church, okay, <laughs> is either ignorant, apathetic, or fearful, okay, to teach on these issues. And I think we as believers ought to encourage churches to teach on this. One, they're apathetic. In other words, they don't think the issues are either important or that it's important enough for, particularly, I'm going to say, our young people to know how to discuss these issues, all right? Um, one, they're ignorant. They don't know what to teach on these issues. Or three, they're fearful of losing their believers, all right? I had a recent conversation with a pastor. This is just real recent with another pastor in another church, and it was about a very specific issue. Why don't you, and it was one of these issues, why do you not speak out on these issues? He says, his answer was, well, I think those that know Christ already know the answer, and those that are kind of waffling in their faith, um, I don't want to offend them. And I thought both of those answers are wrong. Because if, if, I think we, we as the church often think that people know the answers to these questions in our body, and they don't. So that's a false assumption. And those that are kind of new to the faith, okay, come to church, um, they, they, need, they need to hear the truth, all right? Um, I saw a hand here. Yeah, so situation ethics. Um, I will tell you, so I, we do this actually at our medicine and ministry universe organ once a year. Uh, invite, again, I don't do it by myself. I invite a whole panel of the doctors because I don't want to be the only one speaking. And we go over all these issues in about a two-hour time frame. And a couple of years ago, one of the kids, UNOVO students, came and he saw the truth of what we were speaking and he asked for salvation. He had never known Christ personally and he asked for salvation in a lecture on bioethics. So my point is, God's going to do with the truth what God's going to do with the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so here's a question. What virtues are important for a healthcare provider? What issues are important for a healthcare provider? Honesty, compassion, consistency, knowledge. I didn't hear that one. What? Integrity, privacy. All right. So that some great answers there, and uh, there's there's some of mine that I put on on there as well. Um, certainly, compassion was already mentioned. Non-judgmental. I think that's really important. I mean, I've got all kinds of patients going through some of these issues that come in that I need, I need to be non-judgmental from the standpoint of what they're doing with their lifestyle. Not that they, they shouldn't have medical correction in it, okay? But, but, you know, they need to know Christ. Number one is they need to know Christ. But I still need to be non-judgmental. I hope I'm making sense there of how I treat them and love them and compassionate to them even though they've made some bad choices. Because we've all, you, me, have made bad, cho bad choices in our life. All right? All of us have. And we all need forgiveness. Uh, we need to be supportive. We need to be authentic. We need to be humble. We need to be encourager. And we do need to be provocative. 
I mean, I, as a healthcare provider, I need to be provocative of my patient. If I want my patient to change a lifestyle, I need to be provocative in telling them why. All right? Um, so, how do, we, how do we address individuals and our culture with some of these issues? So, I want to go through these scriptures uh, uh, real quick, because I think they're, they're important. Um, so Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouths of fools spout folly. So we need to be gentle in how we approach these issues in our culture. And I will tell you that sometimes we, as, again, the church universal, when I say the church, I'm not about your church, the church, we need to apologize the way we've addressed some of these issues in the past because we haven't done it with a gentle answer, all right? And that has provoked some people to leave the church. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, which is quoted on your brochure for this, uh, uh, this whole next month, um, I think Ephesians chapter 4 um, is a great chapter of how to interact with people. Um, so just read a few verses out of Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Therefore... Or I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. 14 and 15. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ." And then 29 through 32, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Uh, and then 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We need to remember that. Uh, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And I love that word opportunity. These issues, and I've got another slide, well, I'm going to say it again, these issues are divisive, but they're an opportunity for us to be Christ in the world, all right? And the darker the world, the brighter the light of Christ is. Second uh, Timothy 2, 22-26. Uh, now flee from these youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace for those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So who grants them repentance? God does, not us. We are supposed to give a gentle answer. We're supposed to, uh, again, be confrontational or in opposition, but gently, and God is the one that will be, bring repentance. And then 1 Peter 2.23 Christ is our example, of course, for, for all of us. And while being reviled, that's Christ, he did not revile in return, but suffering he uttered no threats, 
but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightlessly. So God is our judge. So the next question is, why are physicians in a unique position to uphold truth and virtue? So why are physicians in a unique position? And I take my role as a physician very seriously. I know there's some other doctors and such here, but yeah. We have authority, absolutely. People trust their views. Physicians still rank pretty high. There's, you know, there's all these Gallup polls of who's trustworthy. Um, I made fun of my pastor the other day. There was one that Gallup poll that just came out. Pastors fell down to 53%, and doctors still in the high 80s. So I was making fun of him. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so people are vulnerable. I have, I have patients that share things with me that they don't even share with their spouse. I mean, um, yeah. So physicians are in a very unique position to uphold truth and teach virtue and teach ethics and teach value. Um, and we should not ignore that. You know, we, yeah. We have the opportunity. And I think we as Christians physicians should not ig ignore that fact either. I, I do. I don't ask every patient. I kind of, and I probably don't do it enough. And I do have a, I have a funny story since you asked that. I had one lady that there's a, I have, by the way, I have a whole bunch of books. If you like any of these topics and you want to know what I read, I've got all in this backpack. You can find me afterwards. We can discuss it. And there's certain podcasts I listen to, okay, so on all these issues. But I, there's a guy named David Gray, he's a neurosurgeon in San Diego, wrote a book called Gray Matter, How to Pray with Patients, a whole book on how to pray with your patients. So I followed this a number of years ago. I said, I, I need to do this. So I just followed his script in the book, followed his script. So a lady going to surgery said, you know, I pray for every patient that's going to surgery. It's part of my faith. If you would like me to, I'd be happy to pray with you before your surgery if you want me to. Um, um, but I hope you don't take offense at that or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But and she goes, yeah, please. In fact, she said, she's, this is a couple days before surgery. And she started bawling her head off, said, would you pray for me now? I'm going through a divorce. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Would you please pray for me now? I said, absolutely. And so, so we, pray, we prayed together. Then her surgery comes up. So you're going to pray for me? I said, we prayed again. So now flash forward five years. She comes back now for another surgery. And first words out of her mouth, Dr. Lance, you're going to pray for me, aren't you? And I said, absolutely. So that time, five years... She's now in the middle of the hospital, and she's wheeling down in her wheelchair, going to surgery, and every nurse, Dr. Lance prayed for me, Dr. Lance prayed for me. <laughs> I was kind of embarrassed, but fun, funny, funny story. Um, the, uh, um, and again, physicians are in, in nurses, you know, you have to abide by who you're employed by, I get that, and you have to be careful, but we as the body of Christ, we should be able to pray with anybody. You know, still 90% of Americans say they appreciate being prayed for. That's in Gallup polls. You know, there's some that, some patients say no, okay? But 90% of Americans want to be prayed for, no matter what their faith is, all right? So that's true for, for all of us. Um, here's just, this is, uh, you know, I, I plagiarize a lot of other people. These are kind of the four uh, virtues of a physician that a physician ought to have. Autonomy, justice, beneficence, and non-maleficence. Now, today's culture, in today's culture, today's young, I'm going to blame the young people, if I can do that just a little bit. What do you think they put first of all of those virtues? Anybody have a guess? What does our culture tend to put first? What our political system put first of all those cultures, all those virtues? Autonomy. Autonomy. 
In other words, now autonomy is important. It's important for the physician to understand autonomy. That's in other words, so a person can make their decisions because we give informed consent, very important. But to put it as the first virtue is very misguided, and that's where we've gotten into a lot of troubles with all the issues we're gonna talk about. There's a balance to all of these. Non-maleficence, of course, do no harm. Beneficence, do good. Of course, justice is important, but also autonomy. All very, very important, and we have all kinds of regulations for autonomy. But putting it first can put us in a pickle, and it has put us in pickle. So here's some provocative questions. Are human beings intrinsically valuable, or does their worth depend on the ability to contribute to society? Now, as you know, Iceland boasts that they've eliminated Down syndrome. They boast that. How did they eliminate Down syndrome? Does anybody know how they eliminated Down syndrome? Abortion. They identify. Now, how many people here have a family member, friend, acquaintance that has a kid with Down syndrome? Okay, so a bunch of you. They're the cutest kids in the world. I've got one of the, my employees that has a little four-year-old Down kid. Now, again, he's got some medical issues, but he's the cutest kid. He comes over to my house and plays. I mean, I just love him dearly. Um, but our society, our culture, is placing a worth on people based on what they can contribute to society. And that is flat out wrong biblically. We need to understand that. We need to understand that. Can truth be changed on personal preference or circumstances? What do you think? So lowercase truth, that is not a capital truth. Lowercase truth, we tend to change with personal preference and circumstances, correct. But I will argue that truth is truth God created truth. A lot of his truth is revealed in the scripture. And that, again, I should step back. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. It's what I believe. I believe it's true. I believe it's always been true. I believe it's God's word. I believe it's breathed by the Holy Spirit. And it's unchangeable. In fact, he states that everything that's going to pass away, the heavens and earth are going to pass away, but my word will not pass away. That's scriptural. His word is truth. So we as a culture will tend to um, hold truth as malleable. So let me go into that. Anybody want to define what postmodernism is? How many have heard that term postmodernism? Okay, almost everybody. Anybody want to give me a definition? There's a lot of definitions. Anybody be so bold. What's postmodernism? Anybody? Well, here, I'm going to read. Uh, this is from the Colson Center. Uh, this is from John Stone Street, who now runs, you know, Chuck Colson's passed away, but he still has his Colson Center, uh, which speaks truth into our culture. He goes, at its heart, postmodernism posits that neither revelation nor reason can give us the story of reality. In fact, according to postmodernism, there is no universal, discernible story of reality. Truth is a social construct for the postmodernist, even observable truths like male and female. External, seemingly objective facts are to the postmodernists clouded by our endless interpretations, which are shaped by our own experiences and cultural biases and whatever meanings we want to attach to them. It's a long definition. In other words, truth in the past has been based on, for us Christians, of course, scripture, okay, reality, and reason, okay? Now, in our postmodern world, other things are defining truth, including feelings, all right? or autonomy, all right? So that's the way our culture uh, is going. Um, 
So let's now dive into some topics. So that took the first half hour just to set the basis. Um, but abuse. Um, so anybody want to define abuse? What is abuse? Because, you know, it's been... I don't know, there's the doctor at Michigan State, so doctors abuse. I don't want to go into that story, Dr. Nassar. Um, there's the Me Too... Uh, what's the women's movement now? I've forgotten the name of it. Yeah, the Me Too movement. Um, so there's all kinds of abuse, all right? Physicians, by the way, are usually, the vast majority of time, someone that's abused, the first person that, that they seek out will be a healthcare provider, okay, 90% of the time. Um, so there's different ways to recognize abuse. Abuse is common. Uh, and sitting here, there's someone in this audience who was abused as a younger child. There's still forgiveness for it. You ought to talk to your pastor or counselor if it's still an issue that you harbor and have bitterness and unforgiveness. There's restitution for that. Uh, but even physicians can abuse, and it's been well documented. Um, so I don't belabor that, but that is a huge cultural issue today, abuse, and we need to be aware of it. How about human trafficking? No, no it's not just physical abuse. So if I say that, so physical abuse, uh, which of course can be sexual, but it can be um, violent, violence, it can be emotional abuse, it can be verbal abuse. Um, so there's, uh, that's, thank you for pointing out, there's multiple ways to abuse, absolutely. Uh, human trafficking, you know, that's prevalent in Oregon. I don't know if you guys, this I-5 corridor, this is prevalent. You have kids in your area, Salem area, that are trafficked. There's kids in Eugene that are trafficked, all right? And again, 90% of them, when they first seek help, is going to be with a healthcare provider. So we need to be at the forefront of that. We need to be aware of it. We need help. We need to rescue um, for that. So those are two topics I'm going to gloss over real quick, we're, unless there's other questions, because we're going to go to gender identity. That's a big issue in today's topic, all right? And whatever we don't get through this morning, we're going to get through next Sunday on different issues. So first of all, here's your question. Is gender identity a social construct, or is it created? Anybody want to answer that? It's created. I hope most people believe that here. But today, it has become a social construct. Um, there's, I, again, so one of the books in here is Nancy Piercy, and it's, uh, um, it's about uh, loving thy body, is the name of her book. But in today's culture, we have separated the body from the rest of us, okay? So what, what does, when God created us, when God made man in his own image, what makes up a man? I say man, again, hopefully I'm not being offensive, but that includes man and women and children and everybody. God, that's the term the Bible uses, but when God made man, what makes up a person? What makes a person? Question, answers, answers. What makes a person? So body's one answer, what else? Spirit, soul, okay, and you can expand on that. So spirit, soul, heart, conscience. So there's more to a person than the body. But a lot of these issues, we are separating the body from the rest of us, okay? And it's wrong to do that. Now, granted, and I'm very thankful, I think many of you are, that I get a new body when I get in heaven. I'm looking for that. My body has some problems. But um, 
the materialistic word world thinks that only matter matters, and we are in a very materialistic world, and it's ignoring the heart, the soul, the mind, and the conscience. So, under gender identity, is gender transition a right, or is it a disorder? Um, and I'll come back to that. Why is the suicide rate, rate higher? Suicide there's been some good studies. The, the uh, Scandinavian countries, interestingly, is socialized medicine. Every patient demographic is followed, so they document it because they're all under the, the same system. And the suicide rate after someone's been gendered transition is almost 20, 19 times, not 19%, 19 times higher than the general population. All right? Um, I was just reading, again, I read a lot of blogs, articles. I was just reading that, um, you know, I think parents should have a certain amount of rights, particularly when it comes to public schools, and we may even get into that. But there's a blog about how parents should be able to gender transition their children even when they're three years old. That is crazy. You know, it's just crazy. I mean, three-year-olds can't, they, they, well, they don't know. I, I could go on and on about that. Um, why is it culturally chic? Here's a question. Why is it culturally chic? Why is it popular for this gender transition? There is an agenda out there, and uh, if you want to read a good book about how that came about, Albert Moeller, great author, he actually has a daily blog as well, so I, I read his stuff a lot, but there clearly is an agenda out there. There is and he kind of alludes to who the big figures are in pushing the agenda. So that clearly does happen. Absolutely, yeah. That's a great point. I can be something different than what I am, okay? Now, and I think the root cause, which I will get to when we talk about more, for all these issues, all these issues, is I can be in control so God does not have to be in control. Once you come to faith in Christ, who's in control? Now, it's a process. You can go through Romans 6. It's a battle. Paul talks about his battle. Okay, But who's in control? Who do we want to be in control? Let me put it that way. When you become a follower of Christ, who do you want to be in control of your life? Christ. He's our what? Our Lord. He is our Savior, but he's our Lord. If you have a Lord... He's our master. Now, we have a good master. We have a great master. He's the one who wants to be in control. So according to your, what you're saying, I completely agree. A lot of these issues are God's not important. I can be master of my own destination. destiny. Yeah. Yes. Our culture is elevated autonomy. We've exchanged truth for a lie. Absolutely. We've exchanged truth for a lie, and a lot of it has to do with the autonomy. In other words, um, I can get what I want. And there, what's, there's a lot of jargons out there, these catchphrases that advertising companies use all the time, but I can get what I want. Yeah, so rugged individualism. He, she is quoting Robert Bork, and if you don't know it, there, how is it to be a person, you actually have now a verb after your name. Do you know what it means to be borked? Okay, so to be borked means you need to be cast aside because you're upholding truth. Okay, that means to be borked. All right, so he was a Supreme Court nominee who got voted down by the U.S. Senate. Yeah. 
Yeah, let me get let me get to that in a second. Great question. How, in other words, this uh, gender transition issue, which it just was it just a couple days ago, it was big news in the media. Sorry, I'm going to go outside of this. We could talk about this for hours. There was a quote, a couple, where they were both gender transition. So now the man got pregnant and had a baby. So the one of the major stations, actually several news medias, outlines. TV print, a man can get pregnant and have a baby. That was the headline. Our world's crazy. But we're going to come, yeah. And what you said and what you said back here, so truth is going to be in a very fragment aroma to some, as Paul says in Corinthians. It will be, a, to others, it will not. It is not us to know or to discern who that's going to be. Our role is to be obedient in speaking the truth, and we understand that we, we're going to get into what our role as believers later on in this discussion, but yes. So if I'm God, I'm in charge of creating, okay, and what we create, and we're going to get in all kinds of those issues with all of those, not only what we create and what we choose to do, but that comes with, with genetics now. So we're going to get a little bit in genetics as well, but yeah. Right, so the pursuit of happiness, the loneliness and isolation, we can get to, yeah? Would that say sinful desire to be in control of others? Absolutely. Very sinful desire to be in control of others, yeah. This is a real issue today. So we had a young lady who lived with us for two, our home was kind of an open home. We have people that come and go and live with us just that are in a desperate situation, not desperate, but particularly young people. We open, my wife and I, we open our home up. We have people there now and we had a young lady come to us that uh, she'd been in our Bible study a number of years ago and going to the University of Oregon, very broken home. She was abused, and so she and had no money because she had to work full-time while going to school. And so she went down to apply for a house on the University of Oregon campus, and it had to be the, I don't know what the name of the house was, but had this issue to deal with it. So when you registered to be in the house, she came home to us in tears telling us the story. You had to not use any masculine or feminine pronoun to describe yourself. And there are 58 terms you have an option of using that are not masculine or feminine. And then she was told, now you can choose which section of the house, because over in this section there's active sex going on, but if you don't want to be part of this, you can be in this part of the house. So this is the world we live in. So she came home balling, so she said, You're, you just move, we got a room. You move in with us, all right? But... Um, it's a strange world we live in. And on this slide, I said, what age is it an issue? Well, it's an age even at toddler because parents are transitioning their kids, all right? Um, and I, well, we can go on. The, the, how should a physician demonstrate compassion, tolerance, and instruction? You know, tolerance is a word that's thrown around. You know, we are to be intolerant. We as believers are to be intolerant. There are certain things we need to be intolerant of, all right? And part of it is when we're going to get to sexuality. You know, and we're going to get more into sexuality, which I think 